Now hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortune of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Thank you, everyone. Good morning. My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. Very good to be with you on the Lord's Day. Today, we are continuing our Life Together series. As Paul said last week, every year in the fall, we join together with our sister congregations around the city to preach through a shared text together. And this year, we chose the book of Psalms. In Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the Apostle John is taken to a mountain where he is given a vision of the new Jerusalem descending to the earth from heaven. And what is this new Jerusalem? It is the church. The church is the heavenly city of God on earth. And so when we build her up, we are building up the new Jerusalem. If you've been with us for a little bit of time, we recently finished a study in the book of Nehemiah, which is all about the people of God building a new Jerusalem. And from Nehemiah, we learn something of what it means to build up the city of God in our own generation. And so today we turn to the Psalms, specifically to the Psalms of Ascent. These were songs that Jewish pilgrims sang as they journeyed toward Jerusalem for their annual feasts. And so they would band together in large caravans of neighbors and extended family, and they would travel together to Jerusalem singing these Psalms of Ascent as they went. Therefore, because the church is the new Jerusalem, the Psalms of Ascent have a lot to teach us about the church, what it means to love her, what it means to be her, what it means to build her up, and what it means to seek her good. And today we have come to Psalm 126. I'd like to, I'd like to begin with a question. And it may take just a few moments for us to think about this. Can you remember a time, a time or maybe a season in your life when difficult circumstances completely changed for the good? Do you remember how it felt when that happened? What did you do? Do you remember, did you did you laugh? Did you cry? Did you just think, is this really happening? Is this real? Can you, can you picture it? And do you remember where you were? Do you remember who you were with? Do you remember what they did? Do you remember if they cried or laughed? Throughout Scripture, God's people have experienced incredible changes in their circumstances. In Jeremiah 30, we have what's known as Jeremiah's Book of Restoration. 
In this chapter, God's people are facing life in Babylonian exile, and Yahweh promises to bring them hope and restoration. He reminds them of his faithfulness and power that can reverse their circumstances. Let me read just a few verses from that. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. It's very clear from God's word over and over and over again that God loves to deliver his people. Here they are under military threat, stripped of all that they have, and the Lord says, I'm going to reverse all of this. I'm going to restore all that was lost. And it's, it's not hard to think of other great reversals in Israel's history. We can just name a few. The Exodus, when Israel is removed from slavery in Egypt. The Red Sea, they come to this wall of water. They can't get across, and God makes a way. If you remember the book of Esther, God reversed the fortunes of his people. And even in our most recent study in Nehemiah, God brings Israel back from 70 years in exile into their city, fully restored. Who can even forget Job? who lost everything, and yet the Lord restores Job's fortunes with a double portion. J.R.R. Tolkien coined a word for this in his Lord of the Rings series. It's called a eucatastrophe. It means a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story. In other words, a happy ending, and an unexpected happy ending at that. And that's where we begin in Psalm 126 with the remembrance of a eucatastrophe. Let's read. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It's just an incredible beginning to this song. And what I really want, to, what I really want us to catch here is that this is not just a restoration of material things but a restoration of destiny and hope. It's a restoration when life was at its bleakest. Lord, our life felt like a three-watt bulb in a, in a dim room, in a dark room, but you turned on all the lights. When the Lord restored us, when the Lord brought us back from the brink, when the Lord changed everything for us, it was like we were living in a dream. It was almost too good to be true. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. I just love the imagery here of mouths and tongues. As Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The euphoria of shock gives way to laughter and joyful noises and singing. Has this happened to you before? Maybe it sounds like that in the other room. When you've heard such good news, such good news, that after the initial shock and speechlessness, it just gives way to being overwhelmed and overjoyed. You clapped 
you hugged someone, you high-fived, you, you cheered, you whooped. Maybe you felt something like that during the last scene of Avengers Endgame or Return of the King. Maybe even this laughter here, because of where it's positioned and in the context that it appears, perhaps this laughter might make us think of Abraham and Sarah. They were past the age of being able to even hope for children. They had no hope for children. It was too late for them. But the Lord restored their fortunes and gave them Isaac. And what does his name mean? One who laughs. And Abraham laughs. And Sarah laughs. That's what's happening when fortunes are restored. That's what happens when fortunes get restored. There is laughter, there is singing, there is joy. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we want to know that kind of restoration. As the psalmist recounts, it's not just Israel who knows that Yahweh has done great things in this restoration. No, the nations have taken notice. They say, oh, the Lord has done great things for them. And it's like this great responsatory readings. The nations say, look, the Lord has done great things for them. And Israel agrees, yes, the Lord has done great things for us. Israel says, we remember, Lord, we remember your great deliverance. And that brings us right to verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. So all of a sudden we feel a shift. We feel a shift. We, we understand a little bit more, a little bit better, the context that we're in. Israel has known God's deliverance, but now they're calling on the Lord to deliver them again like he has in the past. The psalmist mentions the Negev, and that's really important because in the south, in, in the Negev, there's no rainfall. There's no water. This is not a place where you can grow crops. It's a, it's a desert. One commentator even noted this, that, it's, that when David mentions the valley of the shadow of death in Psalm 23, it's quite possible that he's talking about the Negev Valley, that he's talking about this place. This is a desperate plea from God's people. It's, it's like they're saying, Lord, our hearts and lives are like a dried up desert. Will you revive us? Will you bring life where there's death? We need you to flood this valley so that we can enjoy your saving grace again, so that we know again that you are the God who delivers and who loves to do so. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Is it? Is that what your, is that what your prayer sounds like this morning? Lord, I feel dry, I feel empty. And only if you move, only if you fill this desert with water, am I going to know again what it feels like to know your deliverance. Let's keep reading. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, 
bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. I read this portion back and forth, and it, it, seems, it seems like a strange transition. Israel asks for a kind of deliverance that would be like turning a desert into a river, which is an incredible transformation, a complete transformation, actually. And in that way, it's, it turns not only just from a prayer, for a prayer of deliverance, but for resurrection. Lord, there's only, there's only death here. Will you bring life? Verses five through six, though, which feels, they feel like a response to Israel's ask, to Israel's prayer. They seem to be saying that those who sow in pain and tears will reap with joy. And that seems antithetical as Paul says in Galatians, God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. But here's where I think the difference is. It's how we sow that also matters. Let's think for a moment about those in Scripture who have sown in tears and reaped with joy. How about Hannah? In 1 Samuel, she cries unto the Lord for a son. She sows in tears and she reaps with joy. She gets Samuel. How about Nehemiah? He's brought to tears at the state of Jerusalem's walls. He sows in tears and he continues to sow as he helps to build the walls back and he reaps with joy. Israel is reestablished as a city. Maybe we could also think about Simeon and Anna in the temple, in the Gospel of Luke. They fasted, they waited, they waited to see the Messiah for decades. They sowed in pain, they sowed in suffering and in waiting, and they reaped with joy. They saw Jesus in the temple. And there are others, but this scripture has this scripture today has found its greatest fulfillment in our Lord and King. Jesus wept outside the tomb of Lazarus and he reaped Lazarus from the grave. He wept on the road to Jerusalem saying, oh Jerusalem, if you only knew what made for peace and he reaped his holy city. He cried in the garden of Gethsemane and reaped the release of criminals and captives. Jesus' tears actually gave life to the world. He cried on the cross, on the way to death, and reaped the joy of our salvation through his own death and resurrection. Most certainly he was, as the Psalm says, he was the one who was going out weeping, bearing seeds for sowing but he was also the one coming home, shouting for joy loud enough for the entire world to hear. 
For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus, in his sowing in tears and his reaping in joy, he had the entire end in mind as he sowed in tears. He enters, more fully than we can imagine, into our God-forsakenness. And having suffered all, he can sympathize with all. He can welcome all. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. And as for restoring our fortunes, listen to his words in John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has restored us beyond the streams of the Negev. He has put a flowing river in all of us who trust him as king and turned us into springs of life, turned us into flowing rivers of living water. We have become the sheaves in his arms, his tears like seeds in the ground. No wonder tears are in very like shape to seeds but they have reaped us, they have reaped us, his body, his church, as a harvest from the vineyard. And do you know, do you know what's even more astounding? Is that Jesus' tears are still bearing fruit. We are still harvesting today from the tears that Jesus shed. And that harvest will last until we see him again. So what does this mean for us, Sojourn, this morning? What does it mean for us as the church, as the body of Christ, in our, in our Life Together series, in our Psalm of Ascent? I'll mention just three things today. First, from Psalm 126, we, we learn this most certainly, that because we are in Christ, because the church is in Christ, because it is the body and Christ is the head, we too are called and can sow tears and expect to reap with joy. Jesus sowed in tears, we will too, we should too. Wherever we do kingdom work and wherever we do that and experience pain, suffering, sadness, or fallout, we are sowing in tears and we can expect to reap with joy one day. Parents, you sow in tears as you disciple your children to know and love the Lord. You who are single, you sow in tears as you, a desire, as you desire a spouse and trust the Lord. 
We sow in tears as a body as we beg God to reveal himself to our coworkers and our neighbors. As we pray for family members to know and experience the love of Christ. As we mourn and pray for God's justice to be done in our country and in our city. As we invite people who don't know Jesus around our tables and beseech God for his grace to be known to them. As we experience persecution for sharing the gospel, as we strive to work with honor in industries where it's difficult to be honorable, in all of these places and more, we sow tears. And by God's grace and promise, that will lead to a harvest one day, maybe in this life, definitely in the life to come. The water that gives life to the desert is sown in the tears of the faithful. I can tell you this, brothers and sisters, the tears that you sow in this life will not be wasted. Jesus' tears were not wasted, nor will yours be. A reaping with joy will come at the coming of Christ. Second, Psalm 126 encourages us amidst the widespread hopelessness and anxiety that people still feel in our world. To feel these things, to feel stress over where our world is, where our country is, what is facing us, everything that's pulling at us, provoking us to worry and fear and anger, we're all feeling that. These, to feel these things is characteristic of life in 2022. We're all feeling it. And even though it's been two years since COVID landed, it is, we still feel it. But life does not have to be like that. Psalm 126 is wonderful for that very reason. Because God is realistic with us. The words of God are realistic with us. We will have trouble and we will have joy. There will be tears and there will be singing. There will be weeping and there will be joyful noises. We are not hopelessly destined to be anxious. Amidst the dearth, we have the joy of the restored fortunes of our King. That is our anchor. He is our anchor. We can laugh when things get bleak. We can rejoice even when things are sad. We can sing songs when we don't have the words. We don't have to experience the futility of the world the way the rest of the world does. In fact, we shouldn't. With Jesus, deserts are just future rivers. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. But he also says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Sojourn, amidst our world, as we continue to build the church and build the kingdom 
we still need to take Jesus' yoke and learn from him. He's saying, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Follow me. And in learning from me and following me, you will find rest for your souls. There's nowhere else that can promise us that. We have a lot of voices in our world saying, no, listen to me. No, listen to me. And Jesus says, no, listen to me. Take my yoke. Put yourself under my teaching. It will mean rest for your soul. Third and finally, according to Psalm 126, (laughs) there's a myth that we need to regularly debunk. And it sounds like this. If I'm faithful enough, God will be good to me. If I'm faithful enough, God will be good to me. But it's just not the way that the Bible describes God's dealings with us. Just consider Joseph or Job or Jesus, two of the most faithful men in Scripture and the most faithful one in Scripture. God was good to them, but their lives were very, very difficult. Billy Graham, if you're unfamiliar, was a pastor. He died four or five years ago. He was a pastor and evangelical leader for nearly eight decades. He was America's pastor, I think, for quite some time. And he had a famous line that he repeated in every sermon that he gave. He said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. A wonderful line. A few years ago, I heard Rich Lusk, who's a pastor in Birmingham, amend slightly this statement by saying, God loves you, and he has a difficult plan for your life. The point is this. God makes interesting stories God writes and constructs interesting stories, complex, layered, intricate stories with highs and lows and setbacks and problems and victories and failures and returns and losses and exiles and grief and celebration and joy and despair. Just... Think about Star Wars, the story, just the story, Star Wars. If we took that story and we got rid of Darth Vader and the Sith and the Empire and the dark side, we would be left with a young Luke Skywalker hanging out on a desert planet, belly aching over power converters. Now that's still a story. It's just not a story that's really gonna draw any kind of attention. It's just not a story worth reading. (laughs) Our daughter Edie, our youngest daughter Edie asks my wife Kimberly and I to tell her stories um, at bedtime. 
And if she does talk us into telling a story off the top of our heads at bedtime, she always says, make sure to throw in a bad part. (laughs) Why? Because bad makes a better story and deliverance is just a better ending. God writes interesting stories and brothers and sisters, even the children of Sojourn, I want you to hear this. God writes interesting stories and he's really tough on characters that he loves. I don't mean unfair, I don't mean mean, I just mean tough. Before you disagree with me, me, think about it this way. Is J.K. Rowling a little hard on Harry Potter? She puts him through a lot. Is Tolkien a bit hard on hobbits? Take this ring to a terrible, terrible place. You probably will die, but go. (laughs) Is Jane Austen just a bit rough with Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet? Yes. Yes. Why? Because a good author wants to shape their characters into resilient, strong, trusting, joyful, deep, hopeful, transformed people. God loves you. Look at the tears of Jesus. It's it's the reason that you're in his arms. It's the reason that he's bringing you to the Father in his psalm of ascent. Look at the cross, look at the tomb. He loves you, he loves you, and he has a difficult plan for your life. And that is very good for you. Now, if I may be so bold, children of Sojourn, will you stand up for a moment? Just stand up on your feet, those of you who can. Yeah, Rose, that's great. Maybe Lou, anyone else? We could all stand for this, but I'm just, let's say this together. I want you to repeat after me. God loves me, and he has a difficult plan for my life. Let's say it one more time. Say it one more time. God loves me. And he has a difficult plan for my life. Okay. And when you talk to your parents or your parish, I want you to ask them, Pastor Dodd said this, what is he talking about? (laughs) Is he outside of his head? But after you say that, after they say that, then you can, what I want you all to do, children of Sojourn, I want you to listen to your parents and to your parish. Deal? Good. Let me leave just us all with one final thought just from a contemporary theologian. He says this, I believe in nothing but Jesus Christ, and if he be as the story says, then all is well. 
Hail to the world with all its summers and snow, all its delight and all of its aching, all of its jubilance and its old age. We shall come out of it as children of life. Amen. Let's pray. Holy and gracious Father, Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us so much that you would actually allow difficulty to come to shape us in such a way that we would be the kind of people that Psalm 126 is talking about. People who remember your deliverance. People who remember the joy of knowing your deliverance. People who remember their mouths filled with laughter and joy and singing and joyful noises. Lord, we pray that you would, you would continue in small, small ways derivative of our great deliverance in Christ. And in such a way that, Lord, that the people outside of your body, outside the body of Christ, would look and say, the Lord has done great things for them. And that we're not looking for us to have something wonderful said about us, but something wonderful said about you dwelling and living and working amidst your people. God, we know the difficulty will come. We, we already know that so well. Would you make us a people who aren't just trying to get by and cope with the next thing that comes, but are people who sow in tears, who come to you in, in difficulty and suffering and call upon you, call upon you to intervene, call upon you to save, call upon you to change the circumstances, call upon you to give us strength and sustain us. we be a people who are that desperate and we're not just trying to avoid the difficulty we're trying to let the difficulty do its work to let difficulty in your hand do the work in us that you intend to do Lord help us help us to be a people who sow in tears because we know the end there will be a reaping with joy Help us to be a people who know that difficulty will come. Help us to be a people. Yes. Who honor Christ and know again, this man's tears saved my life. My king's tears saved my life. Lord, help us. We need you. We ask all of it in your name. Amen.